Good morning, Harbour City. And before we get into today's message, let me just say that it is my great joy to announce that next week, after not being able to meet this entire year so far, we're going to be meeting again in person at 4.30 in the afternoon, which is such, such good news. So mark your calendars the 18th of April at 4.30. Sadly, we won't be back at Glenwood Prep School. I've been chatting to the school. The principal misses us. They miss us. They want to have us back. Um, they thought we would be able to go back, but the Department of Education have put out a gazette, which sadly still doesn't allow us to get back into the building at Glenwood Prep. It does kind of look like unless the government adjusts the level one lockdown regulations that we won't be back at Glenwood Prep until we're fully through lockdown and we don't know when that would be. Secondly, I just want to say how grateful I am to Glenridge Church. I think during this time they have hosted five different churches meeting in their facility during the week, which is incredible. When you talk of a base church that serves the kingdom and serves other churches, Glenridge comes to my mind and I can't speak more warmly about them. Even now they've said to us if we need to use any of their venues during the week at night or anything like that, they're open to us. But sadly they haven't been able to assure us kind of an ongoing Sunday space just because they're not sure what they're doing. They're a big church, they've got a lot of people and just with the moving COVID regulations they haven't been able to kind of guarantee us an ongoing space there. So we have a new home, our third home in a year at Trinity Church in Morningside on Gordon Road, just off of Florida Road. I'm sure a lot of you would know it. Uh, their lead pastor, Nigel Richardson, has preached at Harbor City a couple of times over the years. He's a good friend of ours. And he's really just said, hey, if there's anything we can do to help you guys to gather again, we'd love to do that. So they're opening up their space to us. And that means next Sunday, the 18th of April, 4.30 in the afternoon, we will be meeting again in person. Come a little bit early and grab a coffee. We've picked an earlier time than 6 p.m. that we were kind of limited to at Glenridge, which I'm hoping means in the morning you're able to get to the beach or do some fun things with friends, uh, have a bit of a snooze in the afternoon, uh, shower, get changed, and come and join us for church. And then afterwards, be able to have some dinner, maybe do something with people, or I know many of you like to prepare for the week and just get in the zone mentally and physically and well prepared. So that's coming up. We are going to need to do online registration. Glenridge was a massive venue and we didn't really have any danger of breaking that 50% social distancing limitation, but at Trinity we will need to register. So we will put out a link next week where you can register to come and join us. But unless you've got comorbidities or reasons to not come, come and be back with the church, worship in person, fellowship with us, uh, listen to the preaching of the word live. It's going to be so, so good to do that. So we're looking forward to that in a big way. But why don't we take a moment just to close our eyes and pray before we get into today's message. And Jesus, I just ask you to speak to us today. As a church, Lord, we celebrate and thank you for providing a new venue for us. You've always been very good to us with our needs and meeting them, Lord. And right now, as we meet for church at home, for many of us for the last time, we ask you, Lord God, that you would speak to us. Holy Spirit, come and be with us. We pray that you would highlight areas of our lives where you want to encourage us or challenge us or change us. That you would show us blind spots in our lives. That you would reveal yourself to us. And that you would cause us to grow this morning, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So if I was to say to you, Jesus, a priest and a prostitute are all having dinner together, it kind of sounds like the setup for a joke, but it's actually the setup for this morning's sermon from Luke chapter 7. What we're going to be doing for the next couple of weeks is we're going to be doing a short, hopefully punchy preaching series called Jesus Encounters, where we're going to be looking at some of the passages in the Gospels where Jesus encounters normal, everyday people in different situations to get to know more about who the real Jesus is, what he's all about and what his teaching means. Now, I think if you are already a follower of Jesus, this series is going to deepen your faith and make you love and know Jesus more. And if you're not, if you're exploring Christianity, if you're looking into the claims of Jesus, I think this is the perfect series for you to go deeper in getting to know who he is and what he's all about. I'd love to also encourage you to read through one of the Gospels while we're in the series. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, one of those biographies of Jesus' life. Why don't you read through it, pray through that, and kind of get into these different encounters for yourself. But for us as a church, Harbor City, our mission statement for the last few years has been to know Jesus and make Jesus known. To know Jesus and make Jesus known. We are all about Jesus as a church. But in our world and culture today, there are many different versions of Jesus, who he is, that come from all sorts of different sources and places and voices. So in the series, we're going to be looking at Jesus through the scriptures and what they show us about who he is as he interacts with different people. I think it's going to be brilliant. So let's jump straight into encounter number one from Luke 7 verse 36. Then one of the Pharisees invited him, Jesus, to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town, who was a sinner, found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. Let's stop there for a moment before we carry on. In this passage, Luke, the author, who is writing as a journalist for his benefactor, his sponsor, Theophilus, has been doing research on all the stories about Jesus he's heard. And he writes, having interviewed people about the different accounts. So as a master journalist, he's, he's setting the scene here. He's describing each character. He's giving us some background into what is going on, kind of like you would with a play or a movie, so that we can fully engage with the message of this moment. So into character number one, the Pharisee. Who is he? Well, he's a religious leader. He's a priest. He's a moral, upright, and good man. He also would have been really, really rich because the Pharisees, their leaders of that day, were very, very wealthy religious leaders. So this man is a respected and admired social insider who's pretty high up in the social ladder of that town and region. Now, a lot of the Pharisees opposed Jesus because he was so critical of them and because he constantly called them out for their hypocrisy. But for some reason, this Pharisee, whose name is Simon, seems, despite that, to have Jesus into his home for a meal, maybe giving him an opportunity to hear from him because he's heard that this man is a prophet. Simon the Pharisee seems to be open spiritually, curious, and wanting to hear more about Jesus. So he extends the invite to Jesus to come for dinner. And Jesus, character to the main character of the story, he accepts the invite and is reclining at the Pharisee's home. Now that's quite an important detail. 
The fact that Jesus is reclining means he's lying on a couch, not sitting on a chair. And that shows us that this is a banquet. This is a feast. There are a lot of people there. This isn't just some casual kind of Sunday evening toasted sambo or little beans on toast situation. This is a really expensive, extravagant meal. And this would have probably been an environment where the Pharisee is setting up a space for Jesus to teach him and his guests his ways. So that's all going on. Enter character three, the sinful woman. Who is she? Well, we actually don't know a lot about her at all, but we do know that she's notorious in their town. We do know that she's known by everyone as a sinner. And although we don't have the details of her sin throughout church history, it's always been understood that this woman was probably a prostitute. So we're not sure exactly what her sin is, but we know that whatever it is, it was significant enough that everyone knew about it so that she was defined by it or identified by it or known by everyone because of her sin, her past, her decisions and her choices and failures. You can imagine that this woman would have been gossiped about, people whispering about her whenever she walked through the streets. You can imagine that the women of the town didn't want their husbands or sons anywhere near her. She is a social outsider and she's very low down on the social order of things. And she definitely hasn't been invited to this dinner party. So to get back to my opening comment, Jesus, a priest and a prostitute are all having dinner together. And I want you to think about this for a second. Put yourself reclining at the table at that dinner party. I want you to think about like what you would see just seeing Jesus, the Pharisee and the prostitute interact what you would be thinking at that time and what you'd be feeling being in the presence of these different people. And then secondly, I want to ask you which of the two characters you relate to more. Do you relate more to the priest, the Pharisee, or to the prostitute, the sinful woman? Which of their stories uh, is more relatable to your story, your life, your background, your history? Which one of them do you feel like you understand more? And this is important because, listen, we can all kind of fluctuate and be different and think differently at different times in our lives. But each of us leans more towards one type of living and thinking, either the Pharisee's way or the sinful woman's way, either to the way of self-righteousness or the way of self-expression. And I want to ask you today, which way do you lean? So with all that said, the scene is set, the characters have been introduced, but there's a detail that no one at this party except for Jesus knows yet. And it's this, the sinful woman's life has been changed by Jesus. The sinful woman's life has been changed by Jesus. She isn't at this party to sin. She's not there to make anyone uncomfortable or to cause a scene. She's also not there looking for clientele. That's not the reason she's there. She is here to worship Jesus, her savior. And this woman might be an unlikely convert. She might not be the woman you'd expect to be sitting there in the front row of church. But she is desperate because of her encounter with Jesus. She's desperate to be with him, to see him and to thank him. So she plucks up her courage. I mean, imagine if you were her. She knows that if she goes to this party, because she knows Jesus will be there. She knows that if she goes to this party to see him and to thank him and to worship him, she knows what people are going to say about her. She knows the look she's going to get, the experience she's going to have. She needs to be pretty brave to go. And also, what she's got in mind is not a normal type of greeting or appreciation. It's a very lavish, extravagant, and for us, kind of weird way of worshiping Jesus. Luke 7 verse 37. 
She bought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with the perfume. Now again, this might sound a little bit weird to us. I think I'll be able to explain what is going on here in just a little bit. But I need you to see that this is an act of adoration and worship for Jesus. See, this woman knows her past. She knows her story. She knows her sin. She knows what people say about her. She's experienced guilt and shame her whole life. But she also knows that after an encounter with Jesus, he has forgiven her sin. He has changed her life. The guilt and shame is gone. After feeling dirty for years, she's felt clean and free. She no longer feels dirty or disgusting over what she's done or what has been done to her. She feels brand new. And she knows for the first time, maybe in her whole life, that she is right with God. Her shoulders feel lighter. She feels free. And she is overcome with emotion and gratitude. And as she anoints Jesus' feet with this perfume and cleans her feet with her hair, she's weeping tears of joy. And she anoints Jesus' feet with expensive perfume. A lot of the commentators think that this would have cost about a year's worth of wages. So this is a very generous, very sacrificial, very costly act that this woman is undertaking. And this perfume would generally have been used for people who were about to be buried or for people who were being anointed and purified as priests in the temple. And in a sense, it seems like both are relevant for Jesus. He is about to die on the cross for the sins of the world, and he is a priest of God, come to serve God and people. And it seems that this woman seems to know who he is and why he's come. And that's one of the reasons that she's doing this. But in her act of devotion, we see that this, Jesus, this woman loves Jesus, and she worships him as God. But the crowd who are watching this at this dinner party are completely shocked by what this woman is doing. And they're also really shocked that Jesus isn't doing anything to stop it. I mean, can you imagine if someone did this to you? Would you allow this to happen or would you feel uncomfortable? Luke 7.39, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She's a sinner. Wow, this priest is really not happy about what is going on here. There's quite a bit of irony going on in this verse and behind his statement. Firstly, I just want to say the Pharisee is 100% right. This woman is a sinner, just like all of us are, just like you, just like me. She's a sinner. And probably if he went up to her and confronted her on her sin and named her sins, she would agree with him. She'd say, you're right, like I'm a sinner. And probably she would say, sweetie, you don't know the half of it. There's a lot that he doesn't know behind her story. The problem with the Pharisee statement isn't that he calls her a sinner because she is one. It's that he's only half right with what he's calling her. He's missing a very significant adjective there. You see, one word can make all the difference in the world. Yes, this woman is a sinner. But since she's encountered Jesus, her life has been changed forever. And she's no longer just a sinner or just a sinful woman. Now she is a forgiven sinner. She's a redeemed sinner. Now she is a sinner who has repented of his sin and trusted in Jesus and is walking with God as a beloved child of the King. Her past and her present no longer line up 
in the way that they used to. She can no longer be defined by her sin and defined by her past because Jesus has redefined her in himself. She's no longer the sinful woman. She's now the forgiven woman. She's got a new name. She's got a new identity. Ironically, the Pharisee who makes that mistake makes another one. Because when he sees the display of worship and adoration that's going on at his dinner party in his home, he assumes that Jesus cannot be a prophet. He obviously can't be who everyone thinks he is. Because a prophet would never allow this sinful woman to do what she's doing. What does Jesus do? I love it because I just think Jesus is so brilliant. He shows prophetic insight in this moment. He knows what is going on in this guy's mind and heart. He knows what he's thinking. He knows the judgment and comparison and condemnation that's going on in this moment. And he speaks directly to Simon the Pharisee about his doubts and concerns, revealing that he really is a prophet. Although, as we'll see at the end of this text, Jesus is so much more than just a prophet. So what does Jesus say? Luke 7 verse 40. Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you, which as we'll get to know over the next few weeks is kind of Jesus code for buckle up, Simon, you're in for a bumpy ride. He said, say it, teacher. And Jesus goes on to say, a creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and another 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. You have judged correctly, Jesus told him. This is like Jesus saying, Simon, you're an A-plus student. You get it. I'm so proud of you. Well done, my boy. And Simon's kind of nodding his head, grateful that other people are hearing Jesus' affirmation. So he nods and smiles, not knowing that Jesus is actually laying a bit of a trap for him that he's falling into as this parable is being told. Because in this parable... What Jesus is doing is he's subtly, or maybe not so subtly, calling both the priest and the prostitute sinners. They both have debts that they're unable to repay to God, and they both need forgiveness. Their amount of sin might differ. You know, the uh, detrimental nature of their sin might differ between them. Maybe she's done things that have hurt more people or hurt him more than he has done. How visible to others their sin is and how socially acceptable their sins are definitely differs. But they both are sinners and they both have a debt that they need to be forgiven. The priest and the prostitute are much more similar than Simon the Pharisee would ever want to admit. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who has forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. I just love that last comment because it's quite a slat on Simon. Jesus never forgives his sins in this passage. Yes, the sinful woman's forgiven, but Simon, the religious, moral, Pharisee, priest, isn't forgiven of his sins by God. Now, Simon has been judging the woman and what she's done and who she is in her past and her story and how she treats Jesus since she enters the party. And he's also been judging Jesus and his response to her for not stopping her from this act of worship. 
Now, this is a bit of a pastoral aside because I think this is really important to us in our context. Every single one of us have sin in our hearts, can judge others, can look down on others, and can have different prejudice inside of us. Where we look at certain people or certain groups of people and we reject them, just like Simon is rejecting the sinful woman. And when we do this, this is tribalism, it's prejudice. Now, tribal thinking is when we look at people and say, you're not one of us. Whatever the insider group is that we are a part of, we say, you're on the outside. You're part of another group. Whatever it is that unites us and brings us together, you don't have that. You're different. You're other. And because of that, you must be less than. And doing this is definitely common to people. We see this throughout history and throughout the world today. But this is not the way of Jesus. Because the scriptures teach us that all people throughout all time, everywhere, are created by God and made in His image. And because of this, everyone is valuable. So whether you this morning relate more to the Pharisee or to the sinful woman, whether you see their point of view and where they're coming from, whether you look down on the other or not, we can't ever dehumanize the other person just because they're outside of the insider group that we're a part of. Now, Jesus calls us to love them, to love those who we like, to love our neighbor, to love those who are different from us, and to even love our enemies, even if, like the woman, we have a sinful reputation, or even if, like the priest, they're judgmental and self-righteous. Now listen, we don't have to agree with them. In fact, we don't have to agree with what they're doing, with the way they're living, with what they believe. You know, it might be sinful. They might be rejecting God and what they're doing. We don't have to agree with it or even endorse it. But we're not able to dehumanize people just because they're different. Just because someone sins differently to us, just because someone is different to us, or lives differently to us, or looks different to us, or comes from a different ethnicity or religious background or sexual orientation, or has different morals, or different political views, or different table manners, or different cultural ways of doing things, doesn't make them less valuable or important than us. And it doesn't mean that we can mistreat them. And what Jesus does after this encounter with Simon is he reveals Simon's heart and sin, which had been hidden from him and everyone else by comparing him to the sinful woman. What Jesus does is the very thing that Simon has been doing all along, except there's this great reversal here. Simon is shocked at the way Jesus sees him and the way he sees the forgiven woman. Jesus says, you gave me no water for my feet, but she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. This forgiven woman has gone way above and beyond the cultural customs or norms of hospitality in the scene. But this is an issue of hospitality. Common hospitality in that day meant providing water for your guests when they arrived at your feast or banquet so that they could clean their feet, which made sense. They're wearing sandals, they're walking on dirt roads or on sand, and as they come in, they can be refreshed and cleaned by cleaning their feet in this water. For a rich man like Simon the Pharisee, he probably would have had servants who would have been at the door to do this, but not at this dinner party. A kiss was also an affectionate and warm way that you would greet your friends. Now, I know there's some tough guys watching this macho. The thought of kissing another guy maybe doesn't seem too good to you. Think of it as a high five or a hug, kind of bro hug, something like that. But this was perfectly acceptable in this this day. And this would definitely be the way that a respected teacher like Jesus would be greeted at the door when they came into your home. 
And thirdly, providing olive oil for guests was a way that you would just show appreciation to them coming. You know, a lot of the people would have had dry skin from being out in the heat of the day and the oil would have helped them just to soothe and relax as they came into your home. This was another thoughtful act of hospitality. This is the way that their culture worked. But Simon the Pharisee hasn't provided any of these despite knowing this and also having the wealth to provide these things. And failing to do this at a feast like this would have appeared to the other guests as rude and disrespectful. Now normally, you know, if you saw this happen, you might notice it, but not bring it up. You know, this is the kind of thing you might talk to, like your friends within the car ride on the way home. You know, can you believe he didn't wash Jesus' feet? Can you believe there was no oil at the door? Can you believe he didn't greet him like a kiss? He wasn't even at the door when Jesus arrived. But Jesus decides not to ignore these signs of disrespect. But instead, he, he chooses to bring them up when he sees the Pharisees' disrespect towards the forgiven woman. And the crowd were definitely shocked by her actions. I don't want to downplay that. You know, for her to come to Jesus reclining at the table and to wash his feet, to uh, unkind of bundle her hair, to expose her hair, to kiss his feet, show just a level of intimacy that would have been very taboo, to use this perfume, all of this was very, very shocking and offensive to the crowd watching this, but not sinful. But Jesus isn't so interested in what's culturally offensive or not. He's interested in the heart, the, the motive, the attitude inside of her behind the action that she's taken. The sinful woman is externally sinful by reputation. And she shocks and offends the guests by what she does in response to Jesus. But this comes out of a heart of love and worship. Whereas the Pharisee is externally holy and righteous. He's known by everyone as a moral man. But really that's just a facade. Because internally, in the attitude of his heart, he's far from God. And he's full of pride and hypocrisy and judgment and prejudice and sin. Both of these characters are sinners. Both here are in the presence of Jesus. Both are hearing the same teaching. And in a sense, they're both sitting in the same church service, experiencing the same thing. But only one of them is radically transformed by Jesus and his message, while the other seems cool and aloof to what is going on. One is transformed by grace and full of gratitude. And the other is still blind to their own need. The Pharisee, experiencing all of this, can't even fathom. It's the furthest thing from his mind to think that him and the sinful woman both have the same disease and they both need the same cure. He can't, he can't even fathom that they would be in the same situation or the same boat. And here in this Jesus encounter, we see three different responses to sin. Firstly, we've got the Pharisee, the priest, a man who's known for living a holy life, dedicated to God, but he isolates himself away. He shuts himself off from sinful people and places because he thinks the problem is out there rather than inside his own heart. Secondly, we've got the sinful woman. She's someone who is very aware of her own sin. She's very aware of her own story and her past. And when she encounters Jesus and his message of grace and forgiveness, she trusts Jesus and believes him for the forgiveness of her sin. And you know what? She gets it. She gets what Jesus is about. She gets his message. And she is so grateful to feel free from the sin that has bound her for years. And thirdly, Jesus is the holiest person to ever live. He's the only person to be perfect and without sin. Although Hebrews tells us he was tempted in every way, just like we are. 
Not only that, but Jesus lived in the holy perfection of heaven, the only place in the universe completely sanitized from sin. And he left heaven and its perfection to come down into the sin-stained, imperfect world that you and I live in. The sin-stained, imperfect, everyday interactions that we have and to be a part of it. And he did that so that you and I might encounter grace and forgiveness and be reconciled to God. Jesus didn't avoid sinners in fear of being made sinful or becoming sinful. Instead, he went among sinners like you and I in the hopes that we would find forgiveness of our sin inside of him. And most significantly, Jesus doesn't just leave heaven. He doesn't just come among us. Jesus also goes to the cross, as we learned about on Easter, as we celebrated together. The only holy, perfect, sinless man to ever exist. Jesus goes to the cross and is punished and suffers in our place. And all of the vilest, most evil, dirty and disgusting sin is placed on him. And he takes our sin and in exchange gives us his righteousness so that we can be sin-free, holy, pure, and perfect before God. Now, don't get me wrong here. Throughout the scriptures, we see that God hates sin and that he deals radically with sin. On the cross, the full wrath of God is poured out against sin. We see the judgment of God, the anger of God, the condemnation and punishment of God against sin completely poured out. But what we see on the cross is that Jesus comes in our place. He takes our place and he dies on the cross for our sin. He takes the full wrath of the justice of God against sin on himself so that you and I don't have to. So that you and I don't have to be condemned or judged. So that you, do not, you and I do not have to be punished or rejected. And so that we can begin a new relationship with God. Now the Pharisee doesn't get this. He, he doesn't understand grace at all. He doesn't understand what Jesus is about at all. He viewed religion as all about good deeds. And because of that, he was able to look down on others. He was able to look down on the sinful woman because she didn't have good deeds. She had bad deeds. And he was really proud of his works. He was really proud of the things that he had done and the things that he hadn't done. And because he'd worked hard to do this, he would look down on the people who hadn't done what he had done and think, try harder, do more, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you too could be like me. He doesn't get what Jesus is all about. But the sinful woman got it. That's why she worshipped and that's why she loved so much. Because she had encountered grace. And when we encounter the real Jesus, when we truly encounter the message of grace, it transforms us. One last thing. Jesus says to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Remember, again, he doesn't say this to the priest. Luke 7 verse 49, those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this man who even forgives sin? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. If Jesus has the authority to forgive sin, that means that he is God because only God alone can forgive sin. And the people at this dinner party know that. I think in this moment when Jesus says this, they're turning to their left and right saying, did he just say that? Whoa, like... Who does he think he is? He is he saying that he's God and that's how he's able to forgive her sin. You can imagine almost like this hush and awkward uh, whispering going on around the tables. But Jesus says to her, your sin is forgiven. And he ends off saying, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Not your repentance has saved you. You seem remorseful and contrite enough to be forgiven. No. He says, 
He doesn't say your lavish worship has saved you. You've been loving enough towards God. You've been radical and generous and sacrificial enough towards God. You're forgiven. No, he doesn't say that. And he doesn't say your good deeds have saved you. He says your faith has saved you. He highlights her faith because she has believed in Jesus. She has believed what he said. She's believed that he can forgive her. She's believed that he is who he says he is. And as we look at the story today, this amazing Jesus encounter, I want to ask you, how do you need to respond today? Are you more like the Pharisee or are you more like the sinful woman? Are you more like the priest or the prostitute? How do you need to respond today? And as you sit there, how does this Jesus encounter impact you? And what is the Spirit highlighting to you or saying to you in response? Father, I just pray for everyone from Harbor City, any friends watching this, that today as they watch this message, that you would speak, that you would highlight certain things, that you would make them clear. And most importantly, Jesus, that we would know you better. I pray today and over the next few weeks, we would get to know you more fully, that we'd fall more in love with you, that we'd understand your message and that we would live in the fullness of it. And I pray right now, in this moment, whoever's watching this, whatever the response needs to be, that you would make that clear. And Holy Spirit, that you would empower us to take those steps, to do what you're calling us to do, to believe what you're calling us to believe. I even ask for some that you'd open their eyes right now to see Jesus in a new way and to believe that he is who he says he is. We pray these things in your name. How great the chasm that laid between us How high the mountain I could not climb In desperation I turned to heaven And spoke your name into the night Then through the darkness your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul the work is finished the end is written jesus christ my living who could imagine so great a mercy what heart could fathom such boundless grace the god of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame the cross has spoken i am forgiven the King of Kings calls me His own Beautiful Savior, I'm yours forever Jesus Christ, my living hope Hallelujah, praise the one who set me free upon me you have broken every chain there's salvation in your name jesus christ 
Christ, my Lord. 